This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. Today, our far-right, illegitimate Supreme Court handed down another victory for Christian nationalists, and now we are one step closer to their long-term goal of prayer in schools. And what's really abundantly clear with this case is they're not even trying to maintain this facade that they are objectively interpreting the Constitution. They're just brazenly imposing their minoritarian, theocratic views on everyone. So as Politico explains, the Supreme Court on Monday ruled in favor of a Washington State football coach who was suspended over his on-field prayers following games. The justice's decision, largely breaking 6-3 along the court's usual ideological lines, found that the school system infringed on the coach's religious freedom and free speech rights by seeking to block him from engaging in public prayers on the field while flanked by student athletes after games. The court's ruling in line with a series of recent decisions in favor of religious litigants is not a major overhaul of church state legal doctrine, but it is likely to make government employers more cautious about disciplining employees who engage in religious activity in the workplace, even if others complain about it. Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion, the bulk of which garnered the support of all the court's Republican appointees. Quote, both the free exercise and free speech clause of the First Amendment protect expressions like Mr. Kennedy's, nor does a proper understanding of the amendment's establishment clause require the government to single out private religious speech for special disfavor, Gorsuch wrote. The Constitution and the best of our traditions counsel mutual respect and tolerance, not censorship and suppression for religious and non-religious views alike. Now, Gorsuch's argument here is incredibly disingenuous. He's saying that the school not only singled him out, but the school violated his freedom to practice a religion uh, because he was practicing this religion privately. Now, this is an absurd statement to make because that's not what this coach was doing. But listen, as an anti-theist, I don't care if you're going to privately practice your religion. You can't make a show of it, right? But if you're just going to say a little prayer in your head... I don't care. I couldn't care less about that, right? What matters is you don't push your religion on others in your capacity as a state employee. Because if you work for a public school as either a teacher or a coach, well, you work for the state. You are a state representative. And states cannot establish or endorse a religion. If you're going to show some religion, then you have to show all the other religions. You are forced by the Constitution to remain neutral. So Gorsuch is arguing here that, look, he was privately practicing his religion and you cannot stop him from doing that, except what he was doing was not privately practicing his religion. He was brazenly making a show of it to the point where students felt pressure to join in with him on this prayer. Take a look at this really quick clip from Good Morning America. I just want to be able to practice my faith after a football game. Joe Kennedy was an assistant coach at Bremerton High School near Seattle, and in 2008, he started praying by himself at midfield after games. Nobody should have to be fired or worried about their job if they show any signs of faith. Soon, players were joining him, and the school district had a problem. For the school district, Joe Kennedy was crossing a constitutional line. As a coach and a public employee, his act of faith could be seen as an endorsement by the district of a religion. 
And so officials told him he could no longer pray with his players if he wanted to keep his job. Some parents said their sons felt pressured to pray with Kennedy, but others supported him. It came to the point where they said, if you were being able to be seen anywhere on the football field in prayer, then we're going to have to suspend you and ultimately it ended my career. So you have the coach saying, all I want is to pray in public on the football field where everyone can see me. And Gorsuch is saying, no, he's just privately practicing his religion. You can't stop him from doing that. That's infringing on his rights. He's admitting he's not doing it privately. He's doing it publicly in his capacity as a representative of the state. And other students who have a right to a secular public education are saying, it's making me feel like I have to join in. And the court's saying, he has to be allowed to do this. He has to be allowed to do that? Are you kidding me? If that's not an endorsement of a religion, then what is? Now, they're not saying currently that prayer in classrooms is okay because they are essentially ruling this way on a technicality. They're saying, well, he's not in the classroom. If he was in the classroom, then that would be a different story. But he's still on school property and he is brazenly endorsing a religion, praying where everyone can see him. That's promoting a religion. Now, he's not trying to be neutral. He's not saying, well, here's a Christian prayer on Tuesday and on Wednesday, we'll do a Buddhist prayer or whatever. He's simply trying to push his religion on everyone while he is serving as a state representative. That is brazenly against the First Amendment. But the court's saying, mm, doesn't matter. And as Brian Tyler Cohen put it, the Supreme Court just ruled that public school officials can lead students in prayer at school events. This means in Florida, teachers have a constitutional right to lead their classrooms in prayer, but could be fired for acknowledging the existence of gay people. Exactly. Now imagine if that were a Muslim leading school prayer. Imagine if that were a member of the satanic uh, temple doing a ritual, practicing his religion publicly. Do you think that the Supreme Court would have ruled in that same way? Of course not. Of course not. But these are a bunch of rogue theocrats who are unconstitutionally imposing their will on everyone in this country. They don't care about the Constitution. They're not even pretending to try to interpret the Constitution in an objective manner. They're just doing what they want, and they're saying if you don't like it, there's nothing you can do about it. We're not done yet. And what they're saying now is, oh, well, you know, you can't pray in the classrooms. But then two years down the line, three years down the line, they'll use this case as precedent and say, well, if we can't stop an employee from practicing their religion, you know, at a school event, then, of course, it logically follows that we shouldn't be allowed to stop employees from practicing their religion in the classroom. That's religious persecution. So, like, this paves the way towards prayer in schools. They just, they don't care. They don't care at all. They don't care how unpopular they become, how illegitimate they become. They are rogue. They are extremists. And this is only the beginning. Now, I want to get to the dissent here. Justice Sotomayor, in a dissent joined by Justices Elena Kagan and Stephen Breyer, included several photos of the Kennedys' on-field prayers and called the court's decision misguided. Quote, it elevates the religious rights of a school official who voluntarily accepted public employment and the limits that public employment entails over those of his students who are required to attend school and who this court has long recognized are particularly vulnerable and deserving of protection, Sotomayor wrote. And that's a really important point because these students are required to go to school. But that coach, his employment there is a choice. So while he has a captive audience, he now has the capability of endorsing his religion. 
And now that he got away with this, do you think that the school is going to stop him from reading Bible verses with a microphone? I mean, this is just the beginning. So this court couldn't be any more brazen. And because they're so shameless in how extreme they are, well, this has led the American people to support drastic reforms. So a Politico and Morning Consult poll finds that 62% of Americans support term limits for justices, 45% support expanding the number of justices on the court. That's now a plurality. 60% support placing an age cap on justices, 69% support binding justices to a code of ethics, 53% support balancing the court with equal numbers of Democrats, Republicans, and independents. And this is because the court is no longer viewed by the public as an apolitical body. It is a nakedly partisan institution. So people are saying, well, look, if it's just going to be a partisan institution, then we might as well try to balance the numbers on the court to make it, I guess, a little bit more fair. This is how illegitimate the court is. So these are indications that the American people are fed up. They want the Democratic Party, who's now in power to take drastic action to rein in this rogue, far-right, illegitimate court. But what are Democrats doing? Well, Biden said, mm, I don't support expanding the court. And Democrats are sending you emails saying, for $15, we can expand our majority and codify Roe. Okay, well, is codification truly the most reasonable way to go about this? I mean, sure, Roe versus Wade should be codified, but there's nothing stopping this extremist Supreme Court from striking down that law that you pass, assuming you're able to pass it. And with how much rights they're taking away, it is unreasonable to assume that Congress will be able to keep up and codify every single civil right and civil liberty that we lose. So the only thing that we can do is fight, reign in the power of the court, expand the number, but Democrats are saying we don't want to do that. So essentially, we're stuck in this scenario where for decades, we get to watch this court fundamentally transform our country. I mean, in five years, this country is going to look completely different. They are taking us down a path of theocracy. And even if the Constitution protects against that, this court is saying to hell with the Constitution. We have an agenda and we are imposing our minoritarian views on everyone, regardless of how unpopular those views are. Again, I just want to remind everyone, this is year one of a far-right extremist Supreme Court. Imagine what this country is going to look like. Imagine the destruction that they will cause in five, 10 years. It's truly a horrifying thought. And if we don't get leaders who actually are going to stand up and fight, then they are going to destroy this country and ruin the constitution. The Supreme Court has dramatically overreached its authority. We had two conservative senators in the United States Senate, Senator Manchin yeah. and Senator Collins, come out with a very explosive allegation that these that several Supreme Court justices misled them in their during their confirmation hearings and in the lead up to their confirmation. This is a crisis of legitimacy. We have a Supreme Court yeah. justice whose wife participated in January 6th and who used his seat to vote against providing documents that protect potentially led uh, to evidence of such to, to investigators right. in Congress. This is a crisis of legitimacy, and President Biden must address that. That was Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez explicitly making the case for impeachment. And this is admittedly drastic action to take, but it is necessary because the Supreme Court has gone rogue, and this illegitimate Supreme Court must be reined in in order to save democracy. Now, in the event the House Judiciary Committee chose to take up impeachment for purposes of perjury, 
I don't know that every single case would be successful, but is there enough there to claim that these justices under oath misled senators and lied to get their lifetime appointments to the highest court in the land? Absolutely. So before we talk about this any further, take a look at the video that we shared last Friday on the program. It's it's something that you might have already seen, but it's well worth watching again. Take a look. I don't have any agenda. I have no agenda to try to overrule Casey. Um, I have an agenda to stick to the rule of law. As a judge, it is an important precedent of the Supreme Court. By it, I mean Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Been reaffirmed many times. Roe versus Wade decided in 1973 is a precedent of the United States Supreme Court. It was reaffirmed in Casey in 1992 and in several other cases. So a good judge will consider it as precedent of the United States Supreme Court worthy as treatment of precedent like any other. Roe versus Wade is a, an important precedent of the Supreme Court. It was decided in 1973. The Supreme Court has reaffirmed the decision when a decision is challenged and it is reaffirmed that strengthens its value. I believe the Constitution protects the right to privacy. And I have no reason or agenda to prejudge the issue. What would he have done if he if he'd asked? Senator, I would have walked out the door. It's not what judges do. So some of them may have plausible deniability, but I think that there's enough evidence there to suggest that they outright lied. They lied. They said that they wouldn't do this and they did it anyway. Now, put yourself in the position of a worker who applied for a job at McDonald's because McDonald's was seeking a Spanish speaking employee because there is a large portion of the population who they're not able to serve because they don't speak Spanish. So they needed someone who spoke Spanish. So that employee said, I speak Spanish. They hired that employee, and then it turns out, well, that employee doesn't actually speak Spanish. They're not bilingual, they only speak English, and they can't do what they were hired to do. What would happen? Well, at a minimum, that employee would probably be demoted, but that employer would likely fire them. So if it's a normal person who lies to get a job, they would be reprimanded. There would be punishment for that. But when a Supreme Court justice lies to get on the highest court on the land, we're supposed to just let them be there let them continue to destroy democracy i don't think so drastic action must be taken and aoc is right to call for impeachment now because the supreme court has gone rogue well the american people they agree with aoc here and they also support drastic action a politico morning consult poll finds that 62 percent of americans now support term limits for justices 45 percent support expanding the number of justices on the court that's now a plurality 60 percent of americans support placing an age cap on justices 69 percent support binding justices to a code of ethics and 53% support balancing the court with equal numbers of Democrats, Republicans, and independents. Now, the American people would not support balancing the court with an equal number of Democrats, Republicans, and independents if the court wasn't so explicitly and nakedly partisan. But because the, the Supreme Court has given up all pretenses of objectivity and nonpartisan, uh, you know, uh, jurisprudence, well, now the American people see through that and they think, okay, something has to be done because we can't just allow them for the next two to three decades to destroy civil rights and civil liberties. As an institution, we have to take drastic action to save the Supreme Court, to save democracy. So that's what needs to be done. AOC is laying it out. The American people are saying, take action. Over the weekend, there were thousands, if not millions of Americans marching in the streets demanding the Supreme Court 
undo what they did, dem demand that Democrats take action. But what are Democrats doing? Nothing. In fact, Joe Biden made it very clear that he is against expanding the Supreme Court. In other words, he's against what a plurality of Americans think is necessary to save democracy. And Democrats, um, I don't know if there's any leader that plans on doing it, but they should really start calling for impeachment proceedings immediately. Perjury isn't the only thing that you can get these far-right justices for. Clarence Thomas is an insurrectionist. He refused to recuse himself in cases related to January 6th. His wife is an insurrectionist. He's the one Supreme Court justice who voted that Donald Trump doesn't have to turn over documents to the January 6th select committee. But yet he's allowed to continue being a Supreme Court justice with a lifetime appointment after he very clearly is unethical, is compromised. I mean, Democrats, they just, they refuse to act. And yes, it is right to call for the codification of Roe, but that is not a permanent solution because if they were to theoretically codify Roe, well, I mean, a Republican state could challenge that, violate that law. It could go up to the Supreme Court and they could strike that down as unconstitutional. And it's unrealistic to expect Democrats to be able to codify every single civil right and civil liberty that we lose. So court reform is a necessity, but Democrats are saying, actually, we don't support court reform. In fact, we're not going to do anything but fundraise, give us a bigger majority, or we do nothing. That's where we're at, and it's unacceptable. Think of the message that this sends to the, to the American people. If these Supreme Court justices can potentially commit perjury, can engage in conflict of interest, uh, be insurrectionists, and still not see any repercussions. In fact, AOC breaks it down why it's so important that we take action to reform the court right now. If we allow Supreme Court nominees to lie under, earth, under oath and secure lifetime appointments to the highest court of the land and then issue issue without basis, if you read these opinions, issue without basis rulings that deeply undermine the human and civil rights of, of, the, of the majority of Americans, we must see that through. There must be consequences for such a deeply destabilizing action and hostile takeover of our democratic institutions. To allow that to stand is to allow it to happen. And what makes it particularly dangerous is that it sends a blaring uh, signal to all future nominees mm -hmm. that they can now lie to duly elected members of the United States Senate in order to secure Supreme Court uh, uh, confirmations and, and, and seats on the Supreme Court. This do you think lying, what we're saying, you think lying at a confirmation a, a, hearing is an impeachable offense? I believe so. Okay. I believe so. I believe lying under oath is an impeachable offense. Um, I believe that violating federal law in not disclosing income from political organizations, as Clarence Thomas uh, mm -hmm. did years ago, is also potentially an impeachable offense. I believe that, um, that not recusing uh, from cases that one clearly has family members involved in uh, with very deep violations of conflict of interest are also impeachable offenses. And I believe that this is something that should be very seriously considered, uh, including by member by senators like Joe Manchin and Susan Collins. She's absolutely correct there. And it's nice to see at least one Democrat speak up and say, hey, maybe we should start holding elites to the same standard that we hold peasants to. I mean, they very obviously, at a minimum, some of them possibly committed perjury. Others have engaged in a plot to overthrow democracy. 
maybe we should do something. But you see, the message that has been sent to the American people time and again uh, is that elites can get away with basically doing anything and peasants will get prosecuted. How many elites have been arrested for breaking the law when it comes to January 6th versus how many just people who stormed the Capitol were prosecuted? And they should be in jail. They should be arrested for trying to overthrow democracy. But the individuals who egged them on, the elites, they're the ones who should also face accountability. But we just don't see that time and again. Our public officials, they commit war crimes. They commit acts of violence against the American people and nothing is done to them. Now, for once, when democracy is literally at stake, now is not the time to be cowards. Now is the time for Democrats to step up. But Democratic Party leadership has proven that they are not going to meet this moment. Now, surprisingly, in that same interview with AOC, Chuck Todd shared an article by Jason Lincolns published in The New Republic that really breaks down why Democratic Party leaders are terrible, quite frankly. The reason why they don't want to hold the GOP accountable is because they rely on the GOP's success in order to galvanize their own base and then in turn be successful themselves. Lincoln argues, thanks to the Supreme Court's June docket, this is a boom time for coordinated multi-year strategies, so much so that you wonder, do the Democrats have any of their own up their sleeve? Alas, for the Democrats, the flowers of such labor seem unlikely to bloom anytime soon. But what is sprouting from the roughly tilled soil of our politics is a clear distinction between the two parties' theories of change. For the GOP, change comes after long periods of hard work, steady funding, and maintaining enthusiasm and momentum through periods of setback. For Democrats, change is reactive, coming only after the GOP's ambitions have hurt just enough people to make Republicans' rule untenable. It's clear that the first approach is proving more successful and more durable than the other. There are worrying signs that Democrats have been conditioned to believe that the key to their success comes through periodic collapse, that there is a perverse comfort to be taken in the courting of imminent disaster. At the moment, Democrats' hopes for the midterms lie in the potential galvanization of voters that might or might not follow the gutting of reproductive freedom. And across the country, Democrats are trying to help extremist candidates win GOP primaries in the hopes that those candidates will be less competitive in the general elections. Larry Summers believes that whipping inflation will require higher unemployment rates and Democrats are listening. Even the strange reluctance among national Democrats to rise to the defense of the LGBTQ community amid daily genocidal rhetoric of Republicans suggests that they're counting on some amount of mayhem to inspire a normalcy-inducing back Backlash. It's quite depressing to live in a political system where one party can only ascend to power on the backs of the victims the other party leaves behind. So we're in a situation where only one of the two major political parties knows how to successfully wield power. And unfortunately, it's the party that wants to kill us and kill the planet. Republicans know how to make use of a majority. We never hear, hear excuses about the parliamentarian or the filibuster or a couple of rogue Republicans who refuse to go along with their party. They make sure that every single person gets in line and they carry out their agenda. They have short-term and long-term goals and they get them accomplished. Whereas Democrats, they have fundraising emails that they probably pre-wrote anticipating the fall of Roe v. Wade and they ask their base to um, send them 15 bucks so they can expand their majority, so they can maybe begin to do things, even if public opinion polls show that they will lose at least the House. I mean, this is why we are in this predicament. Because Democrats, they have no cohesive vision, and the reason why they don't have a policy agenda, short or long-term goals, is because what they need to do to galvanize their base would conflict 
with what their donors want. So they've chosen their donors over their base. And so this is why we hear excuses time and again. Well, we can't do it. We only have a slim majority in the Senate. Oh, the parliamentarian, the filibuster, mansion, cinema. Oh, well, we can't pass this using reconciliation. They don't know how to wield power. They don't know how to govern, whereas Republicans do. The party that wants us dead, the party that wants to restrict women's rights, take us back to the 1950s, enact a theocracy, they're getting what they want. And so the Democratic Party leadership, they have to go. And that means people like AOC can't be afraid to name and shame members of leadership. Sure, we've seen individuals like AOC and Bernie Sanders tepidly condemn what Democratic Party leaders are doing or won't do, but you have to name and shame them and you have to let people know that they must demand people like Nancy Pelosi step down. Joe Biden must immediately announce that he is not going to seek a second term so the Democratic Party can have a robust primary in the lead up to the 2024 presidential election. This is not okay. The Democratic Party is incapable of meeting this moment. Okay, what we witnessed on Friday is the cowardice of the Democratic Party catching up to them, all right? They know what Republicans have been planning for decades. Republicans have never hidden their agenda. They have shown and told us what play they are going to run, and for some reason, Democrats never craft a defense to stop it. All right, I mean, we didn't just get here yesterday, people. Yes, it's easy to point the finger at Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell, and say, yeah, they put three judges on the Supreme Court. That's true. But I feel like the cowardice and inaction from Democrats caused a lot of this. I have a million questions that people smarter than me can answer. Okay, why didn't President Obama uh, codify Roe v. Wade like he said he would when he was on the campaign trail? That was Charlemagne the God of the Breakfast Club vocalizing the frustration that we're all feeling after seeing the Democratic Party's pathetic response to the Supreme Court striking down Roe v. Wade. And he's right to question Obama's role in this as well because Obama on the campaign trail said one thing and then when he was elected, well, he had a change of heart. Take a look. Well, the first thing I do as president is, is sign the Freedom of Choice Act. Uh, that's the first thing that I do. Now, the Freedom of Choice Act is not my highest legislative priority. So Democrats, they should have known that this was the Republican Party's plan all along and to feign outrage all of a sudden as if you're surprised by this. How are you surprised by this? And what's bad about the situation is that our leaders in the Democratic Party haven't gotten any less feckless as time goes on. Nancy Pelosi read a poem in response to Roe v. Wade being overturned. They were literally on the Capitol steps singing God Bless America, bizarrely so. And I just, I don't know how to even process this information it feels like we're in a parody movie where democratic party leaders are so ridiculously cowardly and feckless that the situation feels hopeless it's completely hopeless it's so bad that even people who aren't typically political are seeing how bad the democratic party is responding to this for example gaming industry's cliff blazinski writes republicans have lost their fucking minds and democrats have no fucking balls i fear for this country we all see it even people who don't follow politics who are traditionally loyal to the democratic party are saying what are you doing now is the time to act why are you not fighting right now why are you telling us that we need a bigger majority biden is the president we have a democratic president 
and the Supreme Court just overturned Roe, do everything in your power right now to protect a woman's right to choose. And this woman who was on MSNBC protesting at one of the rallies over the weekend put it perfectly. So talk to me first about why it is you wanted to come out here today, because something that struck me um, was when you were speaking earlier and you mentioned your anger because you had received a text message from the Biden campaign. Why is that? Um, so I received a text message from Joe Biden's campaign yesterday saying that the Supreme Court had overturned Roe versus Wade and that it was my responsibility to then rush $15 to the Democratic National Party. Um, and I thought that was absolutely outrageous because my rights should not be a fundraising point for them um, or a campaigning point. Uh, they have had multiple opportunities to codify Roe into law over the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and they haven't done it. And if they're going to keep campaigning on this point, they should actually do something about it. She is absolutely right. It is downright insulting that Democrats have the audacity to ask their base for money to fight this when we have had decades where the Republican Party have uh, broadcasted their intent to overturn Roe v. Wade. And they're saying right now, we want to go further. We want a total ban on abortion. And we're going to overturn Obergefell v. Hodges, make gay marriages illegal, uh, make gay intimacy illegal, and ban contraception. And what is the response from Democrats? Well, you have to give us more seats in Congress if you want us to codify Roe. Okay, but you currently still have power. We have a Democratic administration, and there is no shortage of strategies that Biden can implement unilaterally via his pen to make a difference. Here's some of them. As Peter Sullivan of The Hill explains, Senators Elizabeth Warren and Patty Murray led a group of 23 other Senate Democrats calling on Biden to explore a range of executive actions, including allowing abortions to be performed on federal property and providing vouchers for women to travel out of state to get an abortion. As extremist judges and Republican politicians intensify their efforts to strip Americans of their basic reproductive freedoms, you can demonstrate to the country and women everywhere that you will do everything in your power to fight back, the senators wrote to Biden in a letter this month. The Congressional Black Caucus called on Biden to declare a public health emergency around abortion to utilize additional flexibilities and deploy resources where necessary. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, speaking at a protest on Friday, called it the babiest of the babiest of the baby steps, in addition to even more far-reaching steps like expanding the Supreme Court. The pressure is a test of how far Biden is willing to go on the issue, with much of his party outraged and demanding action. The president, a Catholic, has had, at times, complicated history on abortion. For for example, reversing his support for the Hyde Amendment, banning federal funding for abortion amid controversy in 2019 during the Democratic presidential primary. Biden's response to the ruling so far has emphasized calling on the public to elect more Democrats in November so that Congress has the votes to codify Roe v. Wade into law rather than executive action. And it's not just that he supported the Hyde Amendment. Biden has a history of speaking out against abortion. So do you still not support abortion? Is that why you're not really acting currently? What is it? He just, he refuses to act. Now, to be clear, there are some minor things that he's willing to do with executive order, but his administration has been incredibly clear about their uh, apprehensiveness, I guess you can call it, of wanting to use executive action because that could be something that is bad when it comes to their goal 
of saving the right to reproductive health in this country. As Politico explains, Biden has highlighted his executive powers to protect abortion medication availability by mail and the right to interstate travel for an abortion, steps that the rest of his party have cheered. But his team argues that there are sharp limits to his executive powers to protect abortion access. Administration officials stress the White House needs to mount a public response that's realistic about its limits to avoid doing long-term political or practical harm to their goals. So they are honestly arguing that it is counterproductive for Biden to do executive action because that could, in theory, backfire and jeopardize the Democratic Party's long-term goals. First of all, I don't know what those long-term goals are. It's shocking to think that the Democratic Party even has long-term goals. In fact, I'd argue they don't have long-term goals because they haven't demonstrated that they have any long-term goals. But second of all, you're honestly arguing that inaction is going to be better to achieve your long-term goals? Roe v. Wade was just overturned. When are you going to wake up? Republicans are broadcasting to the world that when we take control, we are going to ban abortion in all 50 states. And your goal is to not do anything? I mean, to say that Biden, by trying to make it legal for women to travel across the country to get abortions, that's the bare minimum. Because even if you make this something that is possible, it's still not a reality for most women who can't afford to travel because that costs money. Have you seen the cost of gas? So, honestly, it seems like their goal is to just do nothing. They literally are just going to expect us to wait a decade or two until enough Supreme Court justices die and then hope that at the time when those uh, justices perish, there's a Democrat in charge so they can appoint a liberal justice. That's, that's their goal. Their long-term goal is literally to just wait decades mm -mm. bullshit we don't have decades to wait this is unacceptable and their goal of like codifying roe v wade is incredibly unrealistic and i sound like a broken record because i think i've said this in every single video but is it really realistic to assume that the democratic party is going to keep up to be able to keep up with this far-right supreme court as often as they are striking down civil rights and civil liberties you honestly think you'll be able to continuously codify right after right that gets demolished by this court? Is that really realistic? You can't even pass voting rights, but you're gonna codify all of these rights? Oh, and also expanding the court, not even an option. Ridiculous. Now, the best recommendation that I saw, which is the babyest of baby steps, as AOC said, is you have to have these pop-up abortion clinics on federal lands. That is really important. Immediately have a pop-up clinic, but build these clinics long-term. Yes. You're going to have Republicans shut it down when they take power. If Trump gets reelected or DeSantis as president, they can shut those down. But at least while you are president right now, women in red states have an option. So are they going to do this? Well, in an interview with Dana Bash of CNN, Kamala Harris was very clear. The answer is no. Can the administration expand abortion access or abortion services on federal land, meaning provide the access on federal land that might be in and around states that ban abortion? I think that what is most important right now is that we ensure that the restrictions that the states are trying to put up um, that would prohibit a woman from exercising what we still maintain is her right, that we do everything we can to empower women to not only seek, but to receive the care where it is available. Is a federal land uh, one of those options? I mean, it's not right now what we are discussing, but I will say that when I think about 
what is happening in terms of the states, we have to also recognize, Dana, that we are 130-odd days away from an election, which is going to include Senate races, right? P part of the issue here is that the court has acted, now Congress needs to act. But we, if you count the votes, don't appear to have the votes in the Senate. Well, there's an election happening in 130-odd days. I'm taking, for example, thinking of, of a Senate race in Georgia or North Carolina. There's a the Senate race coming up just in a couple weeks in Colorado. And we need to change the balance and have pro-choice legislators who have the power to make decisions about whether this constitutional right will be in law, right? We say codified, mm -hmm. put it in law so that there will be no ambiguity about it. That response there was crystal clear. Even though it seems like, you know, she was really giving this uh, long-winded, meandering response, the answer is no. Because she's saying there, oh, well, just imagine if we had a couple more votes. In other words, they're not going to do anything unless you give them more votes. So it's not that they have a responsibility. You have a responsibility. Give them more money, give them more votes, and then they'll start to fight for you. They're not going to work with the majority that you already give them, gave them as small as it is. They're calling on you to act. The people in power are calling on you to act. It is truly preposterous. Don't give them a penny, by the way. I mean, can you imagine a situation where a Republican administration who also had a slim majority in the Senate and had a majority in the House would use the filibuster or the parliamentarian as an excuse? No, Trump would be signing as many executive orders as he possibly can, even knowing that some of them are unconstitutional, but just to buy time. I mean, Biden could just say uh, all women have the right to an abortion in every single state. It's very obviously something that he can't do. He doesn't have the authority to do that, but make the Supreme Court slap that down. Give us some more time. It's a desperate time. So desperate times call for des desperate measures. But Democrats haven't deviated from their playbook. Vote for us again. Give us a bigger majority and give us more money. It is truly ridiculous. The Democratic Party, to say that they fucked up this moment, that they cannot meet this moment and have failed to meet this moment, is an understatement. And now people are acknowledging, yeah, the Democratic Party, they're responsible here as well. Sure, the far-right illegitimate Supreme Court, they ultimately are the ones that did this. But... Democrats also, they bear some of the blame here. They never codified Roe v. Wade. On top of that, Ruth Bader Ginsburg refused to step down when she had multiple forms of cancer and died on the court. Democrats time after time have prioritized their own power over our civil rights and civil liberties. And now people are waking up and they're fed up and they're, they're not heeding the call. They're not responding to your fundraising emails. Now they're fucking pissed and they want you to fight right now, not in January when you almost certainly will lose the majorities that you have, but right now. But they won't get that through their heads because all they do is bank on Republicans being cruel and hurting us and then hoping that we run back into their arms. But Americans are fed up and they're sick of this cycle. So once the president had gotten into the vehicle with Bobby. He thought that they were going up to the Capitol. And when Bobby had relayed to him, we're not, we don't have the assets to do it. It's not secure. We're going back to the West Wing. The president had very strong, a very angry response to that. Um, Tony described him as being irate. 
the president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. And Mr. when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. That bombshell revelation was from Cassidy Hutchinson, the former aide to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. And as you saw, she detailed an all-out meltdown by an unhinged Donald Trump on January 6th. This is the president of the United States, just to emphasize this, lunging at a member of Secret Service, trying to go for his neck after he tried to take hold of the steering wheel in a moving vehicle. Now, they discussed invoking the 25th Amendment throughout the course of this hearing, but the fact that they didn't do it that day after he tried to physically assault someone, it's unclear if he actually did grab his neck, but he lunged for it. I just, how do you allow this individual to continue governing after he very clearly is incapable of governing? It's just truly astonishing. Really, really insane shit here. Now, that was one of many revelations that came out from today's hearing featuring Cassidy Hutchinson. And another one really just proves that Donald Trump had a thirst for blood on January 6th because he wanted his supporters to be able to um, enter the premises with weapons. When we were in the offstage announce area tent behind the stage, he was very concerned about the shot, meaning the photograph that we would get because the rally space wasn't full. Um, one of the reasons, which I've previously stated, was because he wanted it to be full and for people to not feel excluded because they'd come far to watch him at the rally. Um, and he felt the mags were at fault for not letting everybody in. but. Another leading reason, and likely the primary reason, is because he wanted it full and he was angry that we weren't letting people through the mags with weapons, what the Secret Service deems as weapons and our, our weapons. But when we were in the offstage announced tent, I was part of a conversation. I was, in the, I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Let the people in. Take the effing mags away. In this particular instance, it wasn't the capacity of our space. It was the mags and the people that didn't want to come through. And that's what Tony had been trying to relay to him that morning. You know, it's not the issues that we encountered on the campaign. We have enough space, sir. They don't want to come in right now. They, they have weapons that they don't want confiscated by the Secret Service and they're fine on the mall, they can see you on the mall, and they want to march straight to the Capitol from the mall. So Trump had no concern for the security of others. He knew that they weren't there to hurt him, and even if they might potentially hurt others, he was okay with that. In fact, I think that implicitly he wanted them to do violence. That's what that indicates to me by him saying that, let them through. Truly insane. Now, I think the second largest bombshell revelation from today's hearing comes in the form of evidence of witness tampering. Now, it was towards the end when Vice Chair Liz Cheney kind of revealed 
that witness tampering is going on. She didn't reveal the names of individuals potentially implicated in this scheme to intimidate and or tamper with witnesses. But the messages here are very clear. So the first one reads, a person let me know you have your deposition tomorrow. He wants me to let you know that he's thinking about you. He knows you're loyal and you're going to do the right thing when you go in for your deposition. He being Donald Trump, I'm assuming. Now also here's a statement from a witness, uh, quote, what they said to me is as long as I continue to be a team player, they know that I'm on the team. I'm doing the right thing. I'm protecting who I need to protect. You know, I'll continue to stay in good graces in Trump world. And they have reminded me a couple of times that Trump does read the transcripts. And just to keep that in mind, as I proceed through my depositions and interviews with the committee. So if you read the subtext in that first message, it looks like intimidation to me. But they're sitting here telling witnesses, well, just know that Trump knows you're very loyal. And if you want to remain in our good graces, well, he does read the transcripts. They are brazen. Now, we don't know if this is coming straight from the horse's mouth or somebody from Trump's world, but either way, we know that Trump is involved in some way, shape, or form with witness tampering. Now, after the hearing concluded, uh, Jamie Raskin, who's a member of the January 6th Select Committee, gave us some additional context about how serious this is. Well, the evidence of witness tampering um, that the committee has released are the two episodes that the vice chair uh, cited today anonymously for obvious reasons. Um, it's a crime to tamper with witnesses. It's a form of obstructing justice. The committee won't tolerate it, and um, we haven't had the chance to fully uh, investigate it or fully discuss it, but it's something on our agenda. In other words, if anyone is prosecuted, this will be one more crime to add to the growing list of crimes. Unbelievable. It's like we're watching a mafia movie play out in real time, but this involves the former president of the United States. Now, at the previous January 6th hearing, we learned that individual members of Congress, such as Green, Gates, Gomert, they sought pardons from the Trump administration. But now we're learning more individuals in Trump world wanted pardons from Donald Trump. And these two names are very, very big names. Ms. Hutchinson. Did Rudy Giuliani ever suggest that he was interested in receiving a presidential pardon related to January 6th? He did. And Ms. Hutchison, did White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows ever indicate that he was interested in receiving a presidential pardon related to January 6th? Mr. Meadows did seek that pardon. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, Ms. Hutchison. So Rudy Giuliani and Mark Meadows reasonably believed that they could be prosecuted for crimes that they believed that they committed, hence the need for pardons from Donald Trump. Now, we get this news almost a month after we learned that the Justice Department would not be charging Meadows with contempt, to which the January 6th committee responded by calling that decision puzzling. And in a statement late Friday, Representatives Benny Thompson and Liz Cheney said, we hope the department provides greater clarity on this matter. No one is above the law. So now that we have this additional context and now know that Meadows sought a pardon from Trump because he believed that he was guilty of crimes, potentially, Merrick Garland looks even worse, even more spineless for not prosecuting him. Now, the last video that I want to play from this event features Michael Flynn. Now, let me remind you that Michael Flynn said there's no reason why we can't have a Myanmar-style military coup here in the United States. Now, he's going to be asked a very direct and simple question. Do you believe in the peaceful transfer of power here in the United States? Pay close attention to his answer. General Flynn, do you believe the violence on January 6th was justified? 
Can we have a minute? Yes. All right, we're back. Congressman Cheney, could you repeat the question, please? Yes. General Flynn, do you believe the violence on January 6th was justified? Is that, can I get a clarification? Is that a moral question or are you asking a legal question? I'm asking both. I said, I, I said, do you believe the violence on January 6th was justified morally? Take the fifth. You believe the violence on January 6th was justified legally? Fifth. General Flynn, do you believe in the peaceful transition of power in the United States of America? The fifth. If somebody pleads the fifth when they're asked whether or not a peaceful transfer of power is something that they believe in, they don't believe in a peaceful transfer of power, and he's broadcasted this before. So it's insane to watch all of this play out, and I don't think that we'll fully appreciate how serious all of this is until a decade or two has passed when we look back at like a Hollywood film about this very event, because this is truly insane shit. This is worse than Watergate. But if Donald Trump isn't held accountable, then I fear for the future of democracy in this country because we might not have a future as a democracy. And that's not to say that we even really have a democracy altogether. I think that the power of the people is waning rapidly in the United States, not that we ever really had real democracy in this country, but what's left of it is hanging on by a thread. And whether or not what we have will survive, all will come down to whether or not the people who tried to kill democracy are going to be held accountable. Well, I was never too optimistic about the prospect of Flint residents ever getting justice after they were poisoned, but now we have confirmation that there will indeed be no justice because the charges against their former governor rick snyder who poisoned them have been dismissed as ed white of huffpost reports a judge had no authority to issue indictments in the flint water scandal the michigan supreme court said tuesday wiping out charges against former governor rick snyder his health director and seven other people it's an astonishing defeat for attorney general dana nessel who took office in 2019 got rid of the special prosecutor and put together a new team to investigate whether crimes were committed when lead contaminated flint's water system in 2014 through 2015. state laws authorize a judge to investigate subpoena witnesses and issue arrest warrants as a one-person grand jury, the Supreme Court said. But they do not authorize the judge to issue indictments, the court said, in a 6-0 opinion. So, in essence, um, Dana Nessel, the Attorney General, completely bungled this case, and we'll get to that, but it's been a while, so I want to jog your memory if you haven't been following this case uh, as close lately. But this video is from January 20th of 2016. This is from CNN, and they explain what happened to the residents of Flint. Melissa Mays says the ominous change in the water was particularly noticeable at bath time. My youngest would tell me, Mom, it's yellow and it's a filmy, gross, foamy thing, and it would smell like open sewer. But we were being told we're still getting used to the new system. It's safe. It's okay. But it wasn't okay. Far from it. Flint's tap water was laced with dangerous levels of lead. The state knew about it and did nothing. 
The trouble began two years ago when the state decided to switch Flint from Detroit's drinking water to a new system. But the new system wouldn't be ready for two years. In the meantime, to save money, they switched to the Flint River water. That first decision turned out to be a mistake, as did nearly every step the state took after it. Michigan's Department of Environmental Quality shoulders much of the blame, what a preliminary task force report calls an abysmal public response. At the time, the state agency told Flint it didn't have to add an anti-corrosive agent to the water, saying it was not necessary until two six-month monitoring periods had been conducted. In other words, they were willing to wait a year to see whether the water was safe. All the while, highly corrosive river water flowed through the city's lead pipes, leaching lead and other dangerous metals into the water supply, and what came out of the tap in many homes was toxic. Almost immediately, residents started complaining. Their water was brown. Some people developed rashes, became sick. Early tests revealed fecal coliform bacteria. So the city and state officials added chlorine to the water supply and told people to boil their water. Both mistakes, which can actually increase the level of lead. At city meetings, residents were repeatedly told the water was safe. We found the worst lead in water contamination that I have seen in 25 years, and believe me, I've seen a lot. Residents didn't find out about the lead until this man stepped in. Mark Edwards is a Virginia Tech researcher who tested the water early last year. It was very scary to see the levels of lead that were hazardous waste levels of lead coming out of her tap water. That's right. The lead levels in one home were so high, water from the tap could be considered hazardous waste. Now, since then, so much more has been uncovered. Not just a criminal conspiracy involving the former governor, Rick Snyder, but a cover-up attempt. Deleting emails. There was a lot here. And so there was a case that was teed up against him, but then Dana Nessel came in and she fired everyone. Now, Jordan Sheridan, who's been following this story for years, put together a really long and comprehensive thread, and he explains how basically this is the fault of Dana Nessel, the Attorney General of Michigan. He writes, Reminder, from 2016 through 2018, an independent Flint prosecutor and lead investigator, former head of Detroit FBI office, had built a widespread criminal prosecution charging 15 state and city officials with crimes ranging from involuntary manslaughter to financial fraud. As we broke, that team was building a case against Snyder for involuntary manslaughter and had compiled evidence showing Snyder helped cover up deadly legionnaires outbreak that killed many in Flint, yet Nessel fired the special prosecutor and chief investigator and the entire original criminal prosecution team based on them, quote, not securing all the evidence. They never gave any evidence for that claim, and my reporting indicates it was never true and Nessel got rid of them for political reasons. In addition to the fire team building a case against Snyder for involuntary manslaughter as I broke, they were also building major racketeering RICO case against state officials for financial fraud that led to poisoning of Flint. They were months away from filing charges when Nessel fired them. After firing the original prosecution 
team for dubious reasons. Nestle then inserted prosecutors who had zero experience investigating or prosecuting widespread financial fraud. Her team didn't even properly debrief with the outgoing fired team of prosecutors who has built the case for three years and had all of the institutional knowledge of a complicated investigation that had been investigating the governor, his top officials, his health department, his environmental department, and local Flint officials. Nestle's team basically restarted from scratch for no real reason. Nestle and her team badly bungled a case that included the following bombshells we broke. Snyder's top advisor and best friend offered payoffs to sick Flint residents and told them Snyder was aware. Prosecutors concluded Snyder and his top officials had covered up the deadly waterborne legionnaires outbreak weeks before his 2014 gubernatorial re-election and had obtained an avalanche of Snyder's phone calls they concluded show this. Snyder's top officials, press secretary, top health department officials, had their phones erased soon before the launch of the Flint criminal investigation in 2016. Several had all of their text messages for 2015 through October of 2015 erased, the period Flint used Flint River. Snyder refused to provide prosecutors with key documents and governor's briefings he received for many years. Snyder's evasiveness potentially would have led to obstruction of justice charges. Top officials in Snyder's administration and local Flint officials were soon to be be charged with major financial fraud linked to a bond deal that led to Flint joining the KWA water pipeline and using Flint River while it was under construction. So long story short, they were ready to file charges. There could have been justice until Dana Nessel came in and then fired everyone for no compelling reason whatsoever. So now because of that AG's incompetence, Rick Snyder is going to literally get away with murder or involuntary manslaughter, but he killed people. His decision as governor led to people dying, getting poisoned, and he's just gonna get away with this, scot-free. This is outrageous. And if you're not concerned with Flint, understand that this can happen in your area as well, because there are a lot of areas in the United States that are vulnerable to a crisis similar to Flint's. And for those of you wondering, Flint still, contrary to popular belief, does not have clean drinking water, because even though they replace the pipes, well, the pipes that lead to the houses are still corroded because of the lead that flowed through them. So the older pipes that uh, had lead going through them that poisoned people, those still haven't been replaced. You have to replace all of them. So, I mean, the situation has improved somewhat, but at the end of the day, they still don't have clean drinking water. And the message that this sends to other governors is that they can now do whatever they want. They can literally poison their own residents to save a buck or two, and there's going to be no charges. In the one case that there could have been accountability for an elected official, you have some idiot attorney general come in and fuck it all up for no reason. It's just infuriating, but I can't pretend as if I'm surprised because I was never really optimistic, as I stated at the beginning of this video. But just when it seemed like maybe there was some hope, of course, that's all dashed. So here we are. That's the latest update. No charges for Rick Snyder, the governor who literally poisoned 100,000 people, most of which people of color. They're still dealing with the ramifications of lead poisoning till this day. But no justice for them. America is an embarrassingly pathetic country where we let our public officials do whatever they want, get away with murder, and um, nobody's surprised by it. 
So I wanted to take some time to expand upon one of the more underrated tweets, in my opinion, that came following the news about Roe v. Wade being overturned. And this is a tweet from actor Samuel L. Jackson, who took to Twitter to call out Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas for not stating whether or not he believes the court should also revisit Loving v. Virginia. Now, for those of you who don't know, Loving v. Virginia is the Supreme Court case that struck down bans on interracial marriages. This is a very important case. Now, the reason why Clarence Thomas is being asked this question by Samuel L. Jackson is because in his concurring opinion to the overturning of Roe v. Wade in the Dobbs case, Clarence Thomas explicitly called for the court to revisit cases with regard to contraception, same-sex intimacy, marriage equality. So he actually name-dropped Griswold v. Connecticut, Lawrence v. Texas, and Obergfell v. Hodges. So he's saying the court should also look at these decisions because these two, like Roe, were wrongly decided. Now, when Clarence Thomas says that we should revisit cases like Obergfell, he's not explicitly saying it's because he thinks that gay marriage is immoral and God doesn't want this to be a thing. He's saying that these were wrongly decided. As a Supreme Court justice, you can't actually say we should rule one way or another based on your religious preference. You have to rule based on the Constitution. So Clarence Thomas is forced to make a constitutional argument, and he's saying that we have to revisit these cases because they violate the Constitution. They were wrongly decided. But the reason why that doesn't make sense is because the cases like Obergfell v. Hodges, they used the same constitutional rationale as the case of Loving v. Virginia. In Loving, the justices held that bans on interracial marriages violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And in Obergfell, the court also held that the 14th Amendment required states to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples. In fact, in the Obergfell case, it cites Loving again and again and again. And the reason why they cite Loving is because that case makes it very clear that the right to marriage is fundamental to the U.S. Constitution and it cannot be denied on the basis of race or sex and sexual orientation. Therefore, it logically follows that if you believe that Obergfell was wrongly decided because the Equal Protection Clause of the U.S. Constitution does not give same-sex couples the right to marry, then you also have to assume that that same 14th Amendment wouldn't give interracial couples the right to marry as well. But Thomas did not call for the court to revisit Loving v. Virginia. And the reason is because he himself is in an interracial marriage, as many of you have heard about. In fact, he's married to a demonic-possessed insurrectionist named Ginny Thomas. I believe it's pronounced Jenny Thomas. And, um, you know, they make a really cute couple. So I understand why he wouldn't want to have his own marriage overruled. But you have to understand, this is the problem, right? He's right to not want to strike down interracial marriages, but he's applying a different standard to two different cases that have been decided using the same logic, and that is inconsistent. He's inadvertently revealing that he is just basing his decision, his desire to overturn or revisit Obergfell to overturn it on his religious preference, not on the Constitution, because if he was actually consistent, he would say we have to revisit all of these cases that used the 14th Amendment to drastically expand rights, but he's not doing that. And this is a problem. This is a problem that Samuel L. Jackson is pointing out. And to be fair, it's not just Clarence Thomas who is a hypocrite here. It's all of the Supreme Court justices. But Clarence Thomas, he was a little bit too brazen. He called for the court to revisit several cases 
But yet, he's conspicuously leaving out another case that you'd think would be grouped in with these other cases that he wants the court to revisit. So the question is, does he even have a judicial philosophy that he adheres to? Or is he just using his religion to interpret the Constitution? And the answer is, he actually does have a judicial philosophy. And that judicial philosophy is to own the libs. Now, you might think that I'm being facetious, but literally, this is something that he stated a very long time ago. He said that his goal as a Supreme Court justice is to make liberals miserable and be on the court for as long as he possibly can. And that's perhaps the one area where Clarence Thomas has been consistent. As Insider explains, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas told his law clerks he intended to serve on the highest court of the land to make the lives of liberals miserable, according to a 1993 report from the New York Times. In a conversation with his law clerks, two years following his confirmation, the New York Times reported Thomas expressed his desire to serve on the court until the year 2034. Quote, the liberals made my life miserable for 43 years, a former clerk remembered Thomas, who was 43 years old when confirmed, saying, according to the New York Times, and I'm going to make their lives miserable for 43 years. And just to remind you, this spiteful, petty, vengeful individual isn't just some random adult. Like, I wouldn't expect this sort of behavior of any adult, but this is a Supreme Court justice. And I'd argue that he's been pretty successful at not just making liberals miserable, but everyone in the country miserable. Because it doesn't matter what the state is. Most people do not want to see Roe v. Wade overturned. Now, if you look at the uh, public opinion polls regarding marriage equality, the overwhelming majority of Americans believe that marriage equality should remain the law of the land. But Clarence Thomas... He's not in favor of that. So part of his judicial philosophy certainly encompasses his religion, but on top of that, it's also a little bit of owning the libs as well. And it's not a stretch to say that because he quite literally has governed in that exact way. So when I tell you that the Supreme Court justices are just making shit up as they go along, they, you know, they issue out some reactionary ruling and then they ascribe some sort of judicial philosophy to it in order to make it seem more legitimate but actually, they don't really believe anything. They're just making it up. This is what I mean. This is the point that Samuel L. Jackson, I think, is making here. Because if Clarence Thomas was genuinely interested in interpreting the Constitution in an objective way, he wouldn't just call for Obergfell and Lawrence and Griswold to be overturned because he thinks that they inappropriately apply the 14th Amendment. He'd also call for Loving v. Virginia to be revisited as well. But Clarence Thomas actually did us all a favor by admitting that he is inconsistent here and he doesn't really care about anything other than his religion and his own the libs philosophy. So that's why that tweet from Samuel L. Jackson was really important, not only because a celebrity has a huge platform and can expose the hypocrisy, but because what Samuel L. Jackson is doing here is opening the doors to a really important conversation that I want people to have, and that is the Supreme Court justices they make shit up as they go along. Has there been Supreme Court justices in the past that have been fairly consistent? Sure. I mean, I disagree with a lot of what she had to say, but I think that Sandra Day O'Connor, for the most part, was trying her best to apply some sort of judicial philosophy. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, maybe you can argue that as well. Um, Scalia, disagree with him, but he was fairly consistent in his textualism, and I disagree with, you know, this interpretation of the Constitution, but he at least tried to re remain consistent and said, yes, you can burn the flag, that's free speech. But individuals like Clarence Thomas would just pick and choose what they like and don't like, and then apply some judicial rationale to it. 
And that's unacceptable. That's why the court is illegitimate. That's why Americans have no faith in this court. It's because of justices who have gone rogue and they're just doing what they want as opposed to interpreting the Constitution in any sort of objective manner. So by now, most of you know about Clarence Thomas's ominous recommendation in Dobbs to revisit particular cases that he believes were wrongly decided. Cases such as Griswold v. Connecticut, Lawrence v. Texas, Obergefell v. Hodges. But in order for the Supreme Court to strike down these old precedents that they've created, there has to be a state that intentionally passes a law that violates these holdings of the Supreme Court. Now, Lawrence v. Texas in particular is interesting because that overturned sodomy laws that Texas passed. So Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton was asked, would he defend a law in his capacity as Attorney General that recriminalized sodomy? Because after all, Lawrence v. Texas was about Texas. And his answer is chilling because he said, Yes, effectively, he would defend the recriminalization of gay intimacy in an effort to help that reach the Supreme Court so they can overturn Lawrence v. Texas. Take a look. I'm sure you read uh, Justice Thomas's concurrence where he said that uh, there were a number of other uh, of these issues, Griswold, uh, Lawrence and Ogafell, that uh, he felt uh, needs to be uh, looked at again. Uh, obviously, the Lawrence case came from Texas. That was the, what outlawed sodomy. Uh, would you, as Attorney General, be comfortable defending a law that once again outlawed sodomy, that questioned Lawrence again, or Griswold, uh, or gay marriage uh, that came from the state legislature to, to put to the test what Justice Thomas said? Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of issues here, but certainly the Supreme Court has stepped into issues that I don't think there was any constitutional provision dealing with. They were legislative issues. And this is one of those issues, and, and there may be more. So I, it would depend on the issue and depend on what state law it says at the time and what but, was overruled. Just, just for the sake of time here, you wouldn't rule out that if the state legislature passed the exact same law that, that Lawrence overturned on sodomy, uh, you wouldn't have any problem then defending that and taking that case back to the Supreme Court? Yeah, look, my job is to defend state law, and, and I'll continue to do that. That is my job under the Constitution, and, and I'm, I'm certainly would willing you support and able to the, do that. Would you support the legislature bringing that test? You know what? I don't know. I'd have to take a look at it. Like I said, this is all new territory for us. So I'd have to see kind of how, how the legislation was laid out and whether we thought we could defend it. That's ultimately, uh, if it's constitutional, look, we're going to go. we're going to go defend it. So that right there was Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton sending the bat signal to Texas Republican legislators saying, if you pass a law criminalizing gay intimacy, I will defend it. That's my job as Attorney General. I'll defend that law. Now he's saying this, but before he didn't want to defend the Supreme Court when they said that marriage equality was a right. And there were certain districts that didn't want to issue out marriage uh, licenses to same-sex couples. But now he's saying, oh, no, I have to defend that law. So we're looking at a situation where within the next couple of years, states, one by one, perhaps starting with Texas, might pass laws criminalizing sodomy. And if you think that this is above Ken Paxton, you'd be wrong because he was an individual who argued for their original sodomy law. 
as Alex Bollinger of LGBTQ Nation writes, Paxton, back when he was a Texas state representative, was one of several lawmakers who signed an amicus brief asking the Supreme Court to decide in favor of Texas' sodomy ban in Lawrence v. Texas. In the brief, Paxton and his colleagues argued that sodomy bans were required for protecting public health. One of the rational bases for enacting the ban was to protect public health from the very real danger of same-sex sodomy, the brief states. Legislators are especially concerned for the health, safety, and well-being of those who may seek to engage in same-sex sodomy. The brief brings up statistics that show that HIV hit gay and bi men particularly hard, but does not show how sodomy laws, which make prevention and treatment measures for HIV more difficult, are related to this, unless one were to assume that people actually decided not to be gay because of this law. The brief also argued that states have a right to encourage marriage and discourage activity outside of marriage, and that the law is one part of a larger network of laws designed to further legitimate state interests of promoting traditional marriage of one man and one woman. Now keep in mind, sodomy refers to both oral and anal sex. So theoretically, this ban on sodomy could harm straight couples as well, but that's not really how the law is going to be applied. So the question is, how do you enforce a ban on sodomy? Because that's relatively difficult to do unless you're going to use technology, which nowadays you could to spy on people uh, in their own homes, then I guess that's one way that you can enforce it. But you know, another question is, why would you get rid of sodomy, ban sodomy, before you do away with same-sex marriages? And, you know, honestly, they can go either way. They're both on the agenda. But if you keep same-sex marriages but criminalize sodomy first, that makes it a lot easier to enforce these sodomy laws. So let me explain. So let's go back to the original Lawrence v. Texas case. So in 1998, cops busted John Lawrence and Tyrone Garner after a neighbor called the cops on them claiming that there was some sort of domestic fight and claimed that there was somebody going crazy with a gun. Turns out that was a complete lie, but police entered the apartment without a warrant, by the way, caught Lawrence and his partner in the act, and they both were subsequently arrested. They were tried and convicted and each charged with $200 for violence the Texas law that prohibits, quote, deviant sexual intercourse. So even though in this instance, a gay couple was prosecuted, you have to imagine that prosecuting gay couples for sodomy was relatively rare because that's a very difficult thing to, you know, report that this is happening in the safety of people's homes. So unless somebody sees them, well, it's hard to actually punish them for it. However, if you criminalize sodomy before you do away with same-sex marriages, well, these states like Texas that want to recriminalize sodomy, they have state records of every married couple, including same-sex couples. So you can reasonably assume that those thousands of couples are intimate, right? And if they're intimate but sodomy is illegal in the state of Texas, well, they can then go to these married couples and they can arrest them. So in theory, outlawing sodomy before you outlaw marriage equality makes these anti-sodomy laws a lot easier to enforce because nobody would doubt that married couples are at least somewhat sexually intimate, right? So that's why it's not unimaginable to think that they would target recriminalizing gay intimacy first. Now, with all of the genocidal rhetoric that the GOP has been using, I don't actually think it's a stretch to imagine them doing a sort of gay witch hunt where they literally use the marriage licenses that the state issued to prosecute gay couples. So if you are a gay married couple, especially, you know, a gay, gay same-sex couple that's two males in one of these red states, 
you need to be wary of this, be mindful of what's to come in the next few years, and acknowledge that the state could prosecute you for being a married couple if they recriminalize sodomy. Because if there's this weird temporary gray area where sodomy is illegal but gay marriages are not, well, you know, it's fine to be married so long as you're not intimate with your spouse. But we know what the state will want to do. They will want to crack down on these couples. Now, this is all theoretical at this point in time. Really, what should, we should be concerned about is the fact that they already want to recriminalize gay intimacy altogether because that is incredibly draconian. I mean, to tell consenting adults what they can and can't do in the privacy of their homes, that is tyrannical. That is authoritarian. But this GOP is out in the open saying, that's kind of what we're going to do next. So uh, buckle up. So it's really horrifying. So, you know, if you're a gay couple in the United States, especially if you're in a same-sex relationship, uh, if you're a man with another man, have an exit plan to get out of that state because we don't know how bad things are going to get. But just keep in mind that this is something that is on the horizon and they're already vocalizing what they want to do. So believe them when they say, that criminalization of gay intimacy is coming. These comments might be strong, but it's how I genuinely feel. Um, I don't care that you're a Christian. I don't care what the Bible says. Like, I feel like it's a clown show, like sitting here trying to decipher what your little mythical book has to say about these very real political issues, right? I don't care if you're Christian. In fact, I will fight for you to have your religious liberty and practice your Christianity. I believe in that. I don't believe in Christianity, which means that you do not get to dictate the way I live my life based on your religion. I don't care what the Bible says. You have every right in the world, all those women who identify with your religion have every right in the world to not get an abortion, to not take birth control, but they do not have the right to dictate my life and what I decide to do with my body. I don't care about your goddamn religion. I'm so tired of having nonstop conversations about what the Bible says you live your life in the way that you interpret the Bible. Again, I don't care, but you don't get to take the Bible and tell me, well, the Bible says this in this chapter in this verse, I don't care. I don't care, I don't believe in it, and I have the right based on our constitution to not believe in it. That incredibly powerful and cathartic rant was made by the great Anna Kasparian of the Young Turks back in 2018, but last year it blew up on TikTok. And now following the news that Roe v. Wade was being overturned and this renewed conversation about the ways that fundamentalist Christians control our lives and our political system, well, it blew up once again for good reason. And when I say blow up, it got like hundreds of millions of views. And the reason why so many people are sharing it is because it resonates with people. It cuts to the core. That clip speaks to me. And every time I see it on my For You page on TikTok, I've got to watch it because it's so important. What she's saying there, this is something that I feel like most young people identify with because young people are not religious. And even if we respect people's rights to be religious, that doesn't mean that we want you to shove it down our fucking throats, right? One of the funniest things that I heard when I was younger was that religion, uh, you know, it's kind of like a penis. It's fine if you have one, but don't take it out and flop it around in my face, right? Put that thing back in your pants. Um, but no, religion itself, in my opinion, I am 
somebody who hates religion. And I have no problem saying that. I am a staunch anti-theist because I was somebody who was brainwashed at a very young age, indoctrinated into fundamentalist Christianity. And as a young child, that harmed me irreparably so. It instilled horrible values in me and got me to think that myself growing up as a gay man was inferior to everyone else, that there was something wrong with me, that I was defective. And this is specifically what the church teaches, and that's harmful. So I'm not somebody who would ban people from practicing religion, but I do believe that as an atheist, we should proselytize. I think that we should actually convince people to stop being religious, not just because oftentimes people don't even realize that religion is harming them, but because religion is anti-factual. It convinces people to suspend belief in empirical reality. It convinces people to base their worldview not on facts and data, but on this belief in a higher power when there's no evidence to confirm the existence of a higher power. Now, again, if you want to believe in religion, if it gives you comfort or purpose or meaning, that's fine. But I certainly draw the line when it comes to you imposing your religion on me. But more than that, I'm going to try to convince you to stop believing in religion. Because one thing that really kept me, you know, glued to religion as I grew up and started to have my doubts was this fear of death and this fear of the unknown. But religion kind of gives you an answer. All these loved ones that, you know, you knew, but they passed away, you're one day going to see them again. When you die, you're going to get to go to heaven if you're good, if you're lucky. Don't be gay, though. You'll go to hell forever. But, you know, you get to go to heaven. And so there's some inherent comfort with that. But as I grew older, I realized that religion had led to me inadvertently devaluing this life because I thought, well, you know, things don't really matter now because we're going to have an eternal life in heaven. So this is just temporary. So this life doesn't really matter. If I'm miserable right now, well, I'll be with Jesus, you know, soon. So who cares? But that's such a sad way to live your life. You have one life. There is no evidence that there's an afterlife. So what you have to do is make the best of right now. Live your life. Don't bank on the existence of some God. And if there is a God, it's probably not the God that you, you know, uh, were indoctrinated into, right? And I certainly hope it's not the Christian God if God were to be real, because that God is a petty fucking bitch. But Anna Kasparian's rant blew up because so many young people feel the same way. I feel the same way. And a lot of people feel the same way. And as Phil Zuckerman of Only Sky puts it, Gen Z is the least religious generation ever. And when you consider that Gen Z disproportionately uses TikTok, well, it's no wonder why this clip was so popular. So more than one in three Zoomers do not have a religion. And this is a number that grows with each subsequent generation. 29% of millennials have no religion. 25% of Gen X has no religion compared to 18% of boomers and 9% of the silent generation. And I'd say that the silent generation is like 90% responsible for sharing all those really creepy Jesus photos on Facebook. Now, what's even more encouraging is where we're headed. So 58% of Zoomers, 48% of Millennials, and 39% of Gen Xers say that it's not important for children to be brought up in religion. And finally, with each subsequent generation, families get less and less religious. So to put everything into perspective, to contextualize this moment right now, it's no wonder why the theocrats are desperate and they're doing everything in their power now to bring back prayer in schools to make sure that, you know, people are attending these private religious institutions. It's because they know religion is on the way out.
rather than learning from their past mistakes if they wanted to promote their religions they're choosing again to shove it down people's throats which is what made them unpopular in the first place and generally speaking like i usually don't like to generalize groups of people but christians are the most hateful most judgmental most miserable people i've ever met and basically everyone in my social circle either grew up religious or is religious currently. And I have never met anyone more judgmental. The people who are non-religious, the atheists, they seemingly have more morals and values than the Christians. So, you know, there's this last-ditch effort by the theocrats to enforce religion on everyone before it goes the way of the dodo permanently. But, unfortunately, what they don't realize is that they're turning people off to religion with their behavior, and even if you try to indoctrinate people, brainwash people, that doesn't necessarily mean that that brainwashing will be permanent because I was brainwashed. I left the Christian fundamentalist cult and now I am a staunch anti-theist. And they just don't know how to adapt, right? Like all institutions, religion has to adapt in order to maintain relevancy in society, but they refused to adapt. They refused to grow at the times. They refused to accept LGBTQ plus people. And because this is an inherently regressive institution, society is leaving it behind. But what we're hearing right now, what we're seeing right now is religion make its last attempt to cling to society. It's hanging on for dear life, but the theocrats ultimately are losing and they might have power right now, but the next generations have all but guaranteed less religion in society. Now, I want to get to a response to Anna's rant because Benny Johnson, conservative, uh, shared this on Twitter and he writes, Lib Anchor goes into unhinged rage after Roe overturned, leaves Christians stunned. So I love this tweet for a number of reasons. First of all, the video is from 2018, but second of all, Benny Johnson, let me remind you, is the individual who accidentally outed himself as a homosexual by complaining about a Google ad for a gay cruise. And um, I don't know how he didn't realize this, but the ad he was complaining about was a targeted ad based off of his internet search history. So people like that prove Anna Kasparian's point because he is a fundamentalist Christian. But yet, he has inadvertently made it very clear that he would be living a very different life had religion not been pumped into his head, probably at a young age, right? He's pretending to be straight. He's married to a woman, LARPing as a straight man when he accidentally outed himself as a gay man. He's looking at gay stuff, gay porn. I don't know what it is, but... I mean, if you're getting an ad for a gay cruise, you're pretty gay. Look, I'm a married gay man. I've never gotten an ad for a gay cruise. So you're probably more gay than me in actuality, bro. Now, Anna Kasparian responded to that saying, Christians stunned that we don't live under theocratic rule based on our constitution. Maybe they should learn more about our country and what it means to be an American. Spoiler alert, acting like thugs and rushing the capital in a bitter temper tantrum ain't it. And this is a really important point to make because more and more we're seeing Republicans just outright reject the separation of church and state. I mean, Clarence Thomas basically inadvertently admitted that he doesn't believe in the separation of church and state. He believes that states should be allowed to establish their own religions, which is an explicit violation of the Constitution. Lauren Boebert said that she's tired of hearing about the separation of church and state. So it is unfathomable to these Christian zealots that they won't be able to enforce their religion on all of us, force all of us to live by the way that they believe their God wants us to live. I mean, if we really were trying to apply the Bible, 
you know, Jesus was more of a socialist figure. But to get the, to Anna's point, I really don't care what's in the Bible. I don't give a fuck what's in the Bible. I don't want to pretend as if, you know, I have to find ways to hypocrisy burn Christians for not following their Bible correctly. Because at the end of the day, I don't care. The Bible is irrelevant. I wipe my ass with the pages of the Bible. It means nothing to me. It's not sacred to me. It has no inherent value to me because I reject the Bible. I don't believe in your God. But they can't get it through their thick skulls that they're not able to force all of us to live under their theocratic version of society. But they're trying. And right now, they're going to win. They're going to have some gains. But really, what gives me a little bit of hopium is knowing that these future generations are less religious and they're just, they're not going to accept it. Because Christians haven't been able to win by convincing us because their arguments are shit, quite frankly. So what they're doing is plan B. Enforce religion on all of us through American institutions. It's going to work temporarily for sure. But at the end of the day, they're losing. And I look forward to the day when religion is politically irrelevant in America. Because really, if there were like 90% Christians in America, that wouldn't really matter if they didn't take up such a huge amount of government. If they didn't actually govern using their religion as justification for certain policies. But that's not the case. We have a religious majority in this country that is imposing their will, their tyrannical will on everyone. And that's just not acceptable. So, you know, for those reasons, that's why Anna Kasparian's rant went viral. And it's bound to go viral again because this is going to be an issue in the foreseeable future. And they're afraid because they know Gen Z and future generations are rejecting their disgusting draconian religion. And we're going to keep rejecting their disgusting draconian religion. So, yeah, Anna Kasparian speaks for me there. And I absolutely love that rant because she speaks... For all of us, not just me, but all young people who are tired of these religious zealots who won't leave us the fuck alone. You're saying now, the president said that this fall, Roe is on the ballot. But what do you say to Democratic voters who argue, wait a minute, we worked really hard to elect a Democratic president yeah. and vice president, yeah. Democratic-led House, yeah. a Democratic-led Senate. Do it now. But do what now? Uh, what now? I mean, we, we need, we, listen, what we did, we extended the child tax credit for the well, first I'm year. I'm sorry, when I say do right? what, yeah. do it now, yeah. act uh, legislatively to make abortion rights legal. We feel the same way. It, do it now. Congress needs to do it now in terms of permanently putting in place a, a, a clear indication that it is the law of the land that women have the ability and the right to make decisions about their reproductive care, and the government does not have the right to make those decisions for a woman. How inspirational. That was the vice president, Kamala Harris, in response to a question about Democrats using their power now, saying, and do what? I don't know, trying, even pretending to fight? At this point, I'm honestly so desperate for some action, I'll even settle for political theater. Even if you just go through the motions and convince me that there's the desire to pretend to fight, I might be surprised. But I mean, this Democratic Party is so weak, they refuse to use their power. The votes just aren't there, so you do nothing. You just sit back and you cross your fingers and hope that Democrats get a larger majority. Now, when it comes to carving out the filibuster, just specifically so Democrats can codify Roe v. Wade, that's not even something that they're going to entertain. Case in point. The president 
Biden told my colleague Anderson Cooper he would be okay with eliminating the filibuster to pass voting rights and, quote, maybe more. Would you support eliminating the filibuster in order to pass federal legislation for abortion rights? Right now, given the current composition of the Senate, the votes aren't there. But and would you so use that's the bully pulpit to but, say, yes, I support it? Well, here's the thing. I, I understand what the, why you're asking the question, mm -hmm. but the reality of it is we don't even get to really answer that in terms of whether it happens or not if we don't have the numbers in the Senate. Are you paying attention, kids? That's what true leadership looks like right there. We don't have the numbers, so why try? Just throw your hands up and sit on your ass until November. It is honestly unbelievable to try to comprehend how incompetent this Democratic Party is. Imagine if this version of the Democratic Party was around during the civil rights era. There'd be zero progress whatsoever. If Biden were president instead of Lyndon B. Johnson, he'd be saying, well, I'm sorry, Martin Luther King, but um, we just don't have the votes, so uh, vote harder next time. That's not what Democrats used to do when they were effective, when they got things done. And I've got to share an article from The Atlantic. This was published in 2014. I don't want to be a swaggerjacker, but the Young Turks shared this article, and it was such a good juxtaposition to compare what Lyndon B. Johnson did to get the Civil Rights Act past compared to today's Democrats, where the thought of fighting is inconceivable to them, literally. Quote, Johnson took off his jacket and tore into the legislative process intimately and tirelessly. As the former Senate Majority Leader, he knew his way around Capitol Hill like few other presidents before him, and none since. The best hope of moving the Civil Rights Bill from the House Rules Committee, whose segregationist chairman, Howard Smith of Virginia, had no intention of relinquishing it, it was a procedure called a discharge petition. If a majority of House members sign a discharge petition, a bill is taken from the committee to the chagrin of its chairman. Johnson made the petition his own personal crusade. Even Risen credits his zeal, noting that after receiving a list of 22 House members vulnerable to pressure on the petition, the president immediately ordered the White House switchboard to get them on the phone. Wherever they could be found, Johnson engaged an army of lieutenants, businessmen, civil rights leaders, labor officials, journalists, and allies on the Hill to go out and find votes for the discharge charge petition. He cut a deal that secured half a dozen votes from the Texas delegation. He showed Martin Luther King Jr. a list of uncommitted Republicans and, as Carl writes, told King to work on them. He directed one labor leader to talk to every human you could, saying, if we fail on this, then we fail on everything. As a leading Southern senator put it, you know, we could have beaten John Kennedy on civil rights, but not Lyndon Johnson. The pressure worked. On December 4th, not two weeks into Johnson's presidency, Chairman Smith began to give way. Rather than have the bill taken from his committee, he privately agreed to begin hearings that would conclude before the end of January and then release the bill. And guess what? He got the civil rights passed because he fought. Let that be a lesson to today's Democrats. Let this be a lesson to their loyalists who defend them no matter what and never even entertain the notion that they fight. Don't just accept that mansion and cinema won't go along with what you want. Make deals. This is what being president is about. Using your bully pulpit. Using carrots. Sticks. But Biden won't do that. Lyndon B. Johnson was working with activists saying these are the individuals who you need to exert pressure on. But Biden is just saying votes, money, that's it. That's all we can do. I mean, again, I really want you to, for a second, imagine Biden being the president during the civil rights era. He'd sit back and do nothing because that's what they're doing now, right? 
The civil rights era could have never been passed. It's inconceivable to me to think that today's Democratic Party could have accomplished a quarter of what the Democratic Party of the FDR years of the civil rights era could have accomplished because they just don't want to fight. They don't even want to try. Now, compare that to the Republican Party, and they know how to wield power. For example, ex-RNC chief Michael Steele says that if Republicans win back the majority, they will abolish the filibuster immediately and pass a nationwide abortion ban. And he says that they do this without hesitation, quote, because it's in their base's interest to do so, he said. That's the difference politically between the two parties. Republicans will go, oh, yeah, the Constitution and the filibuster, all the tradition, the sanctity of the Senate. They don't give a rat's patootie about that when it's the bottom line in politics and power because they know if you want to keep your base satisfied you have to deliver but democrats they haven't gotten that message through their brains yet the thought of fighting to them is almost like offensive like you saw the way that kamala harris answered that question do what now you have a majority it's a slim majority but fight put pressure make deals tell mansion if you support this i'll support you on that you have to at least put in a little bit of effort, but they won't. And they won't even pretend as if they're fighting. They're not even pretending to be busy. Like, you know how when you're working and there's not really anything left to do and your shift is about to be over and you're worried that your manager is going to come over and say, if you got time to lean, you got time to clean. But so you try to like pretend to be busy. Democrats won't even do that. They're just like, mm, they're probably in the Oval Office fucking playing Fortnite. I just, I don't know what they're doing. It's shocking that they are this incompetent. Now, Biden won't even condemn Republicans, won't even say that this party is evil. He's trying to draw a distinction between ultra MAGA, ultra MAGA, his dumb phrase, and normal conservatives on the issue of abortion, which doesn't make sense. So he tweeted out, folks, let's get one thing straight. The ultra MAGA agenda has always been about taking away women's rights in every single state. Okay, stop saying ultra MAGA because it's fucking dumb and they like that. They're putting it on shirts. But why are you trying to create this distinction? Ultra MAGA wants a nationwide abortion ban as, a ban as opposed to non-ultra MAGA, they don't want that. Liz Cheney celebrated this ruling. She's not a MAGA Republican. Ben Shapiro celebrated this ruling. He's not a MAGA Republican. I mean, the Republican Party for decades has made it very clear that they not only want to overturn Roe v. Wade, but they want a nationwide ban on abortion. Kevin McCarthy said, this is just the beginning. Our work is only beginning right now. And Biden can't even bring himself to criticize all of them as extremists because you can't be too rude to Republicans. Meanwhile, as he walks on eggshells so as to not anger the fascists, do you want to know what Michael Steele said that they do in addition to a nationwide abortion ban if they retake power? They'd impeach Biden. Let me repeat that. They are going to impeach you, Joe Biden if they retake the house and do you think it's just going to be the ultra MAGA republicans who vote to impeach you no it's going to be all of them but yet better not offend them now while they try to find reasons to impeach joe biden even though he hasn't engaged in any impeachable offenses by today's standards at least well this is what kamala harris said in response to the uh proposition of maybe impeaching one of these supreme court justices who misled u.s senators to get a lifetime appointment to the highest court in the land take a look you were a senator when justices now justices gorsuch and kavanaugh testified about many issues including obviously roe yeah. at their confirmation hearings now justice gorsuch said it had been reaffirmed 
many times. Kavanaugh called it precedent on precedent. At that particular hearing, you were there. Some senators say that they intentionally misled the public and the Congress. What do you think? I never believed them. I didn't believe them. That's why I voted against them. Do you think that there's anything to be done now? I mean, there's no, they were under oath. I think that, listen, it, it was clear to me when I was sitting in that chair as a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee that they were not, um, that, that, that they were very likely to do what they just did. Notice how she wouldn't even entertain the prospect of impeachment for a second. Can't even address it as a possibility. Just, no, well, I thought that they were lying. Okay, we, we get it. You were right to assume that they were lying, but they did lie. And they lied while they were under oath. So are you going to do anything about that? Not even raise the specter of impeachment? Or are you just going to sit back and let them dictate uh, law in the United States for the next several decades? I mean, do you understand? This is what I mean. They're not just refusing to fight. They're not even pretending as if, you know, they are going to fight. And yes, pretending is bad because you need to walk the walk and talk the talk. But them not even pretending to care, not even doing political theater shows you how little they care about their base. They don't care. They bank on Republicans harming you and stripping you of your civil rights and civil liberties. And once you get desperate enough, then they hope that you come running back into their arms. It's never about, hey, this is our vision, our agenda. It's always about Republicans are bad. We get it. They're bad. They're fascists. But isn't that all the more reason to fight them? I mean, the rhetoric against LGBTQ plus people has been nothing short of genocidal. Has there been any national pushback? Biden signed an executive order to his credit to basically set this sort of standards nationally for schools. But I mean, are you rhetorically going on cable news and saying what they're saying is wrong? To call LGBTQ plus teachers groomers is immoral and that's not who we are. There's nothing. There's nothing. There's just no there there. There's no sign of life. It's just truly astonishing that they're this incompetent. They genuinely don't care. So we had some elections yesterday and it was basically a mixed bag. I don't want to be too down, but there were some significant things that took place that leaves me feeling a little bit um, demoralized. But let me get to the good first of all, because a number of DSA endorsed candidates ended up winning their races. For example, Javier Mabry in District 1 for Colorado State House, Tiffany Chen Kumar for the Ithaca Common Council, Rachel Ventura for the Illinois State District, and perhaps the largest victory for the left of the night was progressive Delia Ramirez, who won her primary in the 3rd Congressional District of Illinois, despite having the Democratic majority for Israel spend more than $160,000 to stop her. So there were a lot of victories, especially at the local level, but at the national level, the left, they took one step forward with Delia and a huge step backwards because Marie Newman, who defeated incumbent corporate Democrat Dan Lipinski a couple of years ago, who was one of the last anti-abortion Democrats, um, she was ousted from Congress. 
she lost her primary. Now, thanks to uh, redistricting, she was forced to run against another incumbent Democrat, and she lost by a landslide. In fact, Democrat Sean Kasten defeated her 67.9 to 28.9 percent, and she will not be going back to Congress. Now, as Akila Lacey of The Intercept reports, in a hotly contested 2020 primary, progressive Marie Newman, the Justice Democrats candidate for Illinois' third congressional district, ousted eight-term Representative Dan Lipinski, one of the last anti-abortion Democrats in Congress. Many House Democrats countered party norms by backing Newman, choosing to stand up for reproductive rights rather than exhibit loyalty to the incumbent. Quote, I think that an anti-choice position is a relic of our past and it is firmly in the Republican ideology and I do not think that this is what our party should be standing for, said Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez at the time. But on Tuesday night in the nation's first primary election since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the first term representative was voted out of Congress by a large margin. Illinois redistricting forced Newman into a member-on-member -member primary, and she opted to run against Representative Sean Kasten, who was elected in 2018 and beat a six-term Republican. During her first primary as an incumbent, Newman faced challenges from outside Congress and within, outside groups that spent just under half a million dollars against her, and a congressional ethics probe that ultimately hurt her candidacy. Hers is the first loss of an incumbent backed by Justice Democrats. So on one hand, this is a case of the Democratic Party successfully pushing out a progressive member of Congress who they do not want in their caucus. But on another hand, this is also a case of Marie Newman shooting herself in the foot because of the ethics probe. Now, we'll talk about what the probe was in a moment, but it turns out that in this particular race, the Democratic Party's base rejected corruption. Now, it's interesting because in the 28th Congressional District of Texas, they embraced corruption when it came to Henry Cuellar, albeit, you know, he just won by a very small margin, but still, oftentimes, Democratic Party voters, they don't necessarily care about corruption, but in this instance, it did hurt Marie Newman. Now, the reason why she was facing an ethics probe is because, well, as Rolling Stone reports, she engaged in a literal quid pro quo. She made a job offer to buy complicity from a potential opponent, and that is a move that is unethical, it's incredibly sleazy, and it's gross. Now, as somebody who ideologically is aligned with Marie Newman, I have no problem condemning her action there. She should have known better. She should have known that something like that would be at a minimum morally questionable, but she still chose to do that. Offer the job in exchange for him not running against her. And that's just, that's gross. But at the same time, is she more or less corrupt than her opponent who defeated her? Because Sean Caston has accepted thousands of dollars from special interests. For example, he took $1,000 in blood money from defense PACs. He took over $5,000 from health industry PACs. And unsurprisingly, he does not support Medicare for all, just like his health industry donors want. Now, that's not to say that I'm excusing Marie Newman's behavior, but I think that all forms of corruption are bad. But one form of corruption has been so normalized that voters don't think twice about it. That is, taking money from special interests and then doing their bidding in turn. Every single member of Congress, I don't care what their ideology is, they acknowledge that Medicare for All is the right policy. Because that is the policy that works in other countries. Having a single payer or a national healthcare system isn't just more affordable but it yields better outcomes. So everyone knows, everyone with a brain anyways knows, maybe Marjorie Greene isn't smart enough to realize that, but most people know that Medicare for all is the policy that would save lives, but yet they take money from their health industry donors and then they choose to back the policy that hurts people and kills people, literally. 
So that legalized bribery is a form of corruption. But still, you know what Marie Newman did, there's no excuse for it. It is morally questionable. But if I am faced with the decision of choosing between a morally questionable corporate Democrat who doesn't support Medicare for all and another morally questionable progressive Democrat who does support Medicare for all, a policy that would save literally tens of thousands of lives every single year, yeah, I'm going to have to make that utilitarian calculation and support the progressive Democrat who also engaged in a quid pro quo. That's not to say that I wouldn't support her being expelled from Congress in the event they were to pass a broad sweeping anti-corruption bill. But still, like, I'm not going to hold progressives to a higher standard than Democrats hold themselves to. All corruption is bad, but with corruption being ubiquitous in Congress, with the state of the country being the way that it is, I'd rather just support Marie Newman in this race and then try to primary her with another leftist in the future, not just let the corporate Democrat win. And I think that the corruption of Sean Caston is worse than what Marie Newman, uh, Newman did there. So, you know, overall, it's a sad situation, but thankfully we do have Delia Ramirez. But rather than adding one more progressive to Congress, now it's a net zero benefit. So that's unfortunate to me. Now, I want to talk about another race. Uh, many of you probably have heard, thanks to an article from the New York Times, that the Democratic Party is spending in GOP primary races in order to prop up extremist insurrectionist candidates that they think they'll be able to beat easier in the fall. Now, I know what you're thinking. Wait, isn't that the same Pied Piper strategy that Democrats used in 2016 that led to Donald Trump winning? Well, yes, you'd be correct. That is a very astute observation, but Democrats apparently have not learned their lesson and they're doing it again. Now, when it comes to Colorado, this is an ad that they ran in favor of a Republican. Now, it's a little bit bizarre at first based on the framing, but just take a look and then I'll explain it when we come back. How conservative is Ron Hanks? Hanks was rated one of the most conservative members in the state house. He says Joe Biden's election was a fraud. Hanks wants to ban all abortions, and he wants to build Trump's border wall. Hanks even sponsored a bill that would allow concealed carry with no permits. Ron Hanks, too conservative for Colorado. Democratic Colorado is responsible for the content of this advertising. Now, you may be thinking, hang on a second, that sounds like they're attacking him, right? Except... No, they're using reverse psychology, expecting GOP primary voters in this state to think, wait a second, that doesn't sound like he's too conservative. It seems like he's not a rhino. That sounds like somebody who I might want to get behind. Yeah. Now, to really appreciate the full scale of absurdity, Democrats also, <laughs> they ran an attack ad against the opponent of Ron Hanks, and they literally, Democrats, attacked Biden and lumped his opponent with Biden saying that he supports big spending, basically trying to make it seem as if O'Day is a rhino. Take a look. Politician Joe O'Day is not who he says he is. O'Day says he wants to rein in government spending, but he supports Biden's $1.2 trillion spending bill. And before running for Senate as a Republican, O'Day actually supported Democrats and even gave money to Michael Bennett. O'Day also donated to John Hickenlooper, even after he signed new gun safety measures into law. No way, O'Day. Colorado deserves a straight shooter. Democratic Colorado is responsible for the content of this advertising. Now, again, that was an advertisement paid for by Democrats. Now, they spent more than a million dollars 
trying to influence this particular GOP primary. And guess what? It blew up in their face because the moderate ended up winning. As HuffPost explains, Republican businessman John O'Day won Tuesday's GOP Senate primary in Colorado, overcoming Democratic interference to boost his primary opponent and potentially setting up a close race with Democratic Senator Michael Bennett in the fall. O'Day defeated State Representative Ron Hanks, a January 6th insurrection attendee who built much of his campaign around former President Donald Trump's lies about the election and was widely seen as unelectable in Colorado, which backed President Joe Biden by 14 percentage points in 2020. O'Day a relative moderate, has accepted Biden's victory and is seen as potential threat to Bennett. National Republicans were not so quietly rooting for O'Day, though they did not spend directly on the race. In other words, rather than spending that money on a tight race in the general election, Democrats wasted all of that money elevating an insurrectionist. Also, they might have a little bit easier of a time winning in November. I mean, had they tried just having a message? See, this is the difference between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, the establishments more specifically, right? The GOP, they don't really seem to care about primaries. They don't spend much money there. They focus their energy trying to defeat Democrats in general elections, whereas Democrats, they meddle in primaries, not just Democratic Party primaries, but GOP primaries, and they focus all of their energy trying to defeat progressives. Do you see why Republicans end up winning more often than not? because they let the base decide, and then they spend to defeat the Democrat. Whereas Democrats, they don't really care what the base wants. They just wanna make sure that they have their preferred candidate in the general, and even if that individual ends up losing, well, at least they defeated the progressive. And when it comes to you know GOP primaries now, they're trying to spend to influence those as well in order to make their lives a little bit easier. I mean, even in the event Ron Hanks were to win and Michael Bennett would have an easier time beating him because I'm assuming that they saw polls that indicated that that would be the case. You are elevating an insurrectionist who is a threat to democracy. In no way should Democrats ever be spending a penny to assist an insurrectionist who literally poses a threat to democracy. They do everything in their power to defeat progressives like Marie Newman, like jessica cisneros like nina turner the list goes on but when it comes to the general their strategy is weak they have no message so these races were really interesting and i just wanted to let you know about them we lost the progressive and the democratic strategy is uh already proving to be a failure so if it's already a failure now imagine how bad it's going to be in november i mean look if they don't reverse course and they don't start delivering for the American people if Biden doesn't start using his pen to sign executive orders to cancel student debt and make our lives better, they're going to get wiped out. Now, maybe Roe will change that. Maybe voters are going to be more likely to want to come out and vote for Democrats now because they believe that they need to have a bigger majority in order to codify Roe. I'm not necessarily sure, but Democrats, they have no vision, they have no strategy, and this is why we are in danger. Because in the face of fascism, Democrats cannot get their act together. And that makes everyone in the country, including the country itself, less safe. I'm old enough to remember when proponents of Florida's Don't Say Gay Law said that this was never about discriminating against LGBTQ plus people. We simply don't want woke sex and gender ideology being taught to young school children. Now, if you watched the Humanist Report at the time, 
I made it very clear and people who know the way that these laws operate made it very clear that that's not happening. There's no sex education or gender ideology that kids are learning about. If there's conversations, then they're age appropriate. For example, if a teacher happens to have a picture of her wife on her desk and a kid asks about that, then perhaps she'll explain in an age appropriate way that that's her spouse. Some women, they marry women. Some men marry men. That's the way it is. You know, if you have a student who acknowledges that Timmy's parents are two dudes, you can explain that. Yeah, you know, some kids have two daddies, even though most of them have a mommy and a daddy, some of them have two mommies. These are conversations that was so outrageous, apparently, right? But no, 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 they insisted. It was about woke ideology. Well, now we're learning about the way that um, this is affecting teachers and predictably, it's having a discriminatory effect overtly so it's not even subtle because queer teachers are now effectively forced to go into the closet because of the don't say gay law so as florida abc news affiliate wftv9 reports in private administrators only seminars last week orange county public school attorneys advised principals what behaviors would and would not be legal under the law during a camp legal presentation according to representatives of the county's teacher association teachers and staff members will be disallowed from wearing rainbow articles of clothing including lanyards distributed by the district last year elementary level teachers reported being discouraged from putting pictures of their same-sex spouse on their desk or talking about them to students. Safe space stickers aimed at LGBTQ students may have to be removed from doors. Teachers will have to report to parents if a student, quote, comes out to them and they must use pronouns assigned at birth, regardless of what the parents allow, the CTA reported. So the effect of the don't say gay law quite literally is leading to queer teachers being forced into the closet. They're now being instructed to out students even if they're in an unsafe environment they're being instructed to literally misgender students even if the parent is saying my child uses she her pronouns nope if that's not assigned at birth by law you're supposed to misgender them that's the effect of the don't say gay law now i ask proponents of this law like joe rogan who argued that this was never about discrimination are you going to come out and apologize after promoting this law is anyone who defended this going to admit that they were wrong and really this was never about woke sex ideology and it was really just about forcing teachers back into the closet because that's what's happening now they're being instructed by their lawyers to be overly cautious because they're afraid of a lawsuit because the law itself is incredibly vague and that's on purpose but in a separate conversation an ocps official said the district needed to err on the side of caution until state officials provided more clarity the strict interpretations they said were necessary to protect both students and teachers the latter could have their teaching licenses revoked if they run afoul of the law the official said now this is not an unintended consequence of the law the law is operating exactly as it should be right these lawmakers are wording this law purposefully vague so they can avoid a constitutional challenge if they're not explicitly telling queer teachers to go into the closet well it's seemingly not illegal but if you make it really vague then you foster this environment of fear where queer teachers don't really know what is or isn't permissible and they just basically go into the closet hide pictures of their same-sex spouse not revealed to their students that they're trans or non-binary even if the teacher or, or if the students have questions that's the effect 
of the Don't Say Gay Law, and we fucking warned you that this was the case. And I think deep down, all of the homophobes pushing the Don't Say Gay Law, they knew this, but they just wanted this to happen. Now, what's happening in Florida is a microcosm of what's happening across the country, because as NPR reported back in April, more than a dozen states have proposed Don't Say Gay Laws, and this coincides with the rise in popularity of the hateful libs of TikTok account on Twitter, which tries to get teachers fired for even acknowledging their identities around children. And predictably, the rise of the groomer rhetoric has led to a massive wave of backlash against LGBTQ plus teachers, because now, People who don't really know about LGBTQ plus people, maybe they don't have a friend who's trans or gay, they just assume that all gays are pedophiles. And within the span of like four months, we've gone back to 1985 discourse in the United States of America when it really felt like America was moving on and overall less susceptible to homophobia. But now the GOP brought it back in full force. And we're in a situation where students are unfortunate enough to lose a lot of really good teachers who cared about them. Teachers like Willie Carver Jr., who was Kentucky's 2022 Teacher of the Year, but is now quitting, citing homophobia as the main reason for his resignation. As NBC News reports, after being openly gay for several years, Willie Carver Jr. never thought about going back into the closet once he started teaching. But during his first week as a high school English teacher in Montgomery, Montgomery, Kentucky, a small town 40 miles east of Lexington, a school administrator had other plans for him. He said, you will be crucified, Carver, 37 recalled. No one will protect you, including me. 12 years later, and shortly after he won his state's Teacher of the Year award, Carver announced last week he would be leaving the profession. Carver said that after changes in his school's administration, he was eventually able to teach openly as a gay man. However, he spent years watching school administrators try to stifle LGBTQ identities, or what he described as death by a thousand cuts, he said. Among many instances of what he described as LGBTQ prejudice, Carver said his employer ordered teachers to remove books written by LGBTQ authors from the school's curriculum, defended students who were accused of tearing down Rainbow Pride posters from school walls, and shut down a student-led poll that aimed to gather insight about the school's climate for LGBTQ inclusion. The straw that broke the camel's back, he said, was when the school administration failed to address repeated harassment against him and LGBTQ students. And this is going to continue to happen. Being a teacher is already difficult enough. You don't get paid very well. It's a thankless job. You have to sometimes use your own resources to purchase school supplies in some of these underfunded districts. And to add homophobia on top of that, it just makes it unbearable. So a lot more queer teachers are probably going to quit. Now, it's not like homophobia in schools didn't exist before Don't Say Gay, but it really repopularized homophobia. It made it socially acceptable to condemn queer teachers simply for being queer, for existing. Now ask yourself this, do you think that the proponents of Don't Say Gay are going to look at what's happening and say, wow, I didn't intend for this to happen. I didn't intend for good queer teachers to quit. They're not gonna say that. They're gonna say, good, fuck them. Willie Carver Jr., Teacher of the Year, fuck them. You shouldn't be around children because gay people are inherently promiscuous and I just don't trust you around my children. Gays must be pedophiles. That's where we're at in the United States. Again, within the span of a couple of months, we've gone back to 1980s discourse when it comes to LGBTQ plus rights. And it's not just social regression that's happening. Because of the Supreme Court, we are going to lose legal rights as queer people as well. So... It's not like this is a surprise to me, but I just wanted to come out and say, if you supported this law, you have yourself to thank. But I don't think that the people who supported this law 
doubted that this was the outcome. I think that a lot of them, they knew, even if it was subconscious, that this will lead to discrimination and harassment against LGBTQ plus teachers. But they wanted that because they're bigots. So here we are. Teachers are now explicitly and overtly being discriminated against, being asked to do what heterosexual teachers aren't. Take down pictures with them and their spouse, out students who are gay, which might lead to them being homeless. But we've got to protect against woke indoctrination, right? It's a sick society that we live in. And the most nauseating part is knowing that so many people are going to celebrate this and not look at it in disgust, not look at it and think, wow, well, I'm not pro-gay, but I guess I'll be tolerant and live and let live. No, they're going to celebrate this. They don't want gay people in society. They want them gone. So if they can't force them into the closet, then you prosecute them legal, legally and socially persecute them and do everything in your power to turn back the clock. That's America in 2022, folks. Today in a 6-3 decision, the Supreme Court has sentenced the earth to burn because they are saying that the Environmental Protection Agency cannot actually regulate greenhouse gas emissions, which cause the planet to warm up. So as a result, this is going to be catastrophic, to say the least. So as CBS News reports, the Supreme Court on Thursday limited the power of the Environmental Protection Agency to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from power plants, delivering a significant blow to the Biden administration's efforts to fight climate change. The court divided 6-3 along ideological lines in finding that Congress, through the Clean Air Act, did not grant the EPA the authority to adopt on its own a regulatory scheme to cap carbon dioxide emissions from power plants to combat global warming. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the majority opinion while the court's three-member liberal bloc dissented. The decision is a victory for a group of Republican-led states and coal companies in their years-long bid to curtail the EPA's power to issue regulations intended to curb carbon emissions. So the Supreme Court unilaterally is saying this agency that Congress created to do just that, protect the environment, they can't actually do that. We decide. This unelected group of rogue extremists, we say, no, you can't do that. I just, I don't know how to be, begin to even process all of these decisions because one after another, we're losing civil rights, civil liberties, and now we're losing the right to a clean planet because the only administrative body in our country, country that had the authority to do something with regard to climate change, the Supreme Court is now withdrawing that power. It's just, it's draconian, it's dystopian, and this is just the beginning. So I want to get some reactions that kind of uh, highlight the implications of this case. Sam Cedar explains today, SCOTUS conservatives block our government from addressing climate change. In near future, they will stop our government from protecting workers, regulating our financial systems, keeping our air and water clean, our food safe, and quashing any attempt to expand health coverage. And he's right about that. Now, prior to finding out the scope of this particular case, Nathan Tankis wrote, go buy some USDA inspected beef, have some FDA approved drugs, go get cash from your FDIC insured bank account, bask in the warmth of a legal structure that is disappearing. Now, Nathan here may have been off on his timing, but there's no question that all regulatory bodies will be stripped of their authority if this rogue court is not reined in. Now, Ryan Grimm came in with a really good point saying, so according to the EPA opinion, if Congress doesn't want the EPA 
EPA to do what Congress charged it by law with doing, shouldn't Congress pass a new law saying so? Yet Congress hasn't. Instead, the court just rewrites the law itself. Exactly. They should run for Congress if they want to rewrite laws. Now, finally, AOC says, catastrophic, a filibuster carve-out is not enough. We need to reform or do away with the whole thing for the sake of the planet. And she's right about that. People are going to attack her for being an extremist. But let me remind you that climate scientists have been very, very clear. They've told us repeatedly that time is running out. We have to take action right now to save the planet. Otherwise, we're not going to have a future. And lawmakers have not gotten that through their heads yet. But the one body in our whole government that was actually doing good when it's not being run by Republicans where they strip it of its authority, now, because of the Supreme Court unilaterally taking away its power, can't do anything. So we are basically unarmed going into this climate apocalypse with nothing to protect ourselves. It's all but a certainty at this point. And so what AOC is saying is extreme, yes, admittedly, but necessary because it's either the Supreme Court or our habitable planet. Abolish the court or expand it either way. We can't let this happen. They have to be reined in. The court needs to be expanded. As Brian Tyler Cohen pointed out, when the court was expanded in the 1800s to nine justices, that was to kind of match the uh, nine appeals courts, circuit courts, excuse me. But now we have 13. So there you go. There's some out for you. Just take action, Biden. Otherwise, we're all doomed. So make no mistake about it. AOC is saying that the court has gone rogue. And in her dissent, I think that Elena Kagan also makes it clear that this rogue court is absolutely tyrannical. Justice Elena Kagan, joined by Justices Stephen Breyer and Sonia Sotomayor, criticized the court's majority for imposing limits on the EPA that, quote, fly in the face of the statute written by Congress and accused the majority of substituting its own ideas about policymaking for Congress's. Whatever else this court may know about, it does not have a clue about how to address climate change. And let's say the obvious. The stakes are high, Justice Elena Kagan wrote in dissent. Yet the court today prevents congressionally authorized agency action to curb power plants' carbon dioxide emissions. The court appoints itself instead of Congress or the expert agency, the decision maker on climate policy. I cannot think of many things more frightening. And this is a Supreme Court justice saying this, saying I can't think of anything more frightened that the Supreme Court is doing this, that they're going this far. Now, a lot of people compare this era to the Lochner Court, where they were constantly gutting worker protections one after another after another. And sure, that's true of this era. They are comparable to the Lochner era court. Um, because they don't really care at all about workers, but they're much, much worse than the Lochner era because their decisions now don't just affect workers in the United States. They have global ramifications. If the Supreme Court says that we, the United States, have no ability to rein in these companies that make us the biggest polluter on the planet, that affects every single living being. So we're at a situation where this rogue court is essentially dooming all of us to climate apocalypse and we just have to accept this for two maybe three decades when the makeup changes which by then will be out of time so i don't know how to come up with some sort of hopium for you all i don't know how to find some silver lining it's bad and if you tune into my show tomorrow at 9 a.m when i talk about something that they're going to cover uh, in the following year, you'll learn very quickly that this is only the beginning. It's going to get a lot worse. So 
Yeah. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.